Good morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, history tells us uh, that whenever Pontius Pilate would come to town, there would be a grand procession. See, Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived about 70 miles north and west of the city in a place called Caesarea, or Caesar's City. And it was home to about 10 dozen cavalry and some 2,500 to 5,000 infantrymen. It was Pilate's job to use these soldiers to demonstrate the power and presence of the empire. And so several times a year, he would lead his men out of the city. They'd head south along the coast, and then they would enter the city of Jerusalem. And it was a good thing they did because there were all sorts of uprisings and revolts along the years. See, one year they had to crucify 2,000 Jewish rebels, hang their bodies along the road simply to serve as the reminder, don't mess with the empire. And a particularly volatile time of year was the week just before Passover, this Jewish celebration. I can't believe we let them celebrate it. And so I imagine Pilate's generals talking about this week. I can't believe we let them actually celebrate their liberation. We see, Rome was so much stronger than Egypt, and so as long as they received their yearly reminder, it tended not to be a problem. And so if you've ever seen clips of the Soviet army or North Korea's military demonstrations, then you can probably picture the scene at the city's west gate, this imperial demonstration of power. There's cavalry on horses, followed by thousands of soldiers, helmets and armor, gold eagles and banners, sun glints off their weapons as they march through the city gate. And then there's the terrible sound that accompanies it all, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, drums beat rhythmically as they process through the city and up towards the temple. And behind all these soldiers rides Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, into the city on the back of a giant war horse. And that's what makes Jesus' parade look so incredibly different. You see, his wasn't an imperial parade, but a peasant's perception. And and we don't really know how the timing of these two parades exactly lines up, But what we do know is this, they would have occurred within several days of one another. And it makes Jesus' parade look so striking. You see, he and his disciples had just spent the night with friends in Bethany. Friends like Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus. You can picture them thinking, just five more miles and we'll finally reach the city. And then you probably know how the story goes. You know, the next morning, Jesus wakes up. He sends two disciples on ahead of him to Bethphage, a town just two miles east of Jerusalem. And he gives them the following instruction. There you'll find a year-old colt. It'll be tied to a donkey. Untie them both and bring them to me. And if someone asks, say, the Lord has need of them. 
And so these two disciples, they head out early in the morning. They quickly return. Jesus mounts his not-so-mighty steed, and, and then the parade begins. He and his disciples crest the Mount of Olives, and that's when people begin to gather. And they're ordinary folks, people like you and me, a mother with two children, a a group of pilgrims, a, a man who's looking for work, and countless more. And as they descend the Kidron Valley and make their final ascent into Jerusalem, you can picture the scene that unfolds because it's at this point that someone would hand you a palm branch. You'd wave it in the air and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. And this scene looks so different because there isn't a singer government or religious official there to greet him. And Jesus, he comes to the city from the east, not the west. And he enters through what's a back door, not its main entrance. And behind his dozen disciples, there he sits, riding into the city, not on the back of a war horse, but a donkey. And so that week, there would have been two parades, two different processions. And and it begs the question, who's really in charge here? Who really rules? Is it Pilate and the Caesar he represents? Or is it Jesus? Now, some of you may know, uh, every year in late fall, uh, the church likes to set aside one Sunday to celebrate and remember that Jesus Christ is our King. It's, it's this big celebration as we remember who he is and, and what he's done for us. But, you know, if you're anything like me, it often seems a little surprising because it's not exactly the picture that the Gospels give us. I mean, there's this scene as Jesus enters Jerusalem and, and peasants, not princes, greet him. And then, and then we've got our reading today. It's the story of, of Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, they nail him to a cross. People show up. They mock and ridicule him. It's not really this kingly picture. And, you know, while it often seems a little strange to me, this year more than most, I actually find myself needing that reminder. I mean, I find myself really needing it. And it was in a circumstance not so different from this that this celebration actually has its genesis. You see, it's just after World War I, and Europe's picking up the pieces. But four years of all-out war, 11 million deaths have robbed this continent of its peace and security. Now, some people are suggesting, advocating for strong, powerful leaders, while others are simply losing their faith as they're searching for answers. And it's in the midst of a situation like this that Pope Pius XI institutes this day. He gives it its start, and as he does, he makes the following observation. He says, many people are thrusting Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. And so long as individuals and nations fail to submit to the way of our Savior, there will be no hopeful prospect of lasting peace between the nations. And as he speaks, you can hear him saying, there are two parades. There's Jesus' parade, and there's all the rest. And it's so easy to show up at the wrong location, and that's why he starts this day. That's why he gives us this reminder. Now, this past uh, fall at Common Ground, I've been uh, teaching a class called Christian History Made Easy. 
That's a 12-week uh, course I've divided between the fall and the, the winter sessions, and uh, in it, we are covering 2,000 years of Christian history. And it's been this incredible experience, because I've learned a lot, things I didn't even learn in seminary. And more than that, every night I show up, I get to make these ridiculous statements. Well, statements like, tonight we're going to cover the fall of Rome, and we're going to do it in about 15 minutes. But you know, my, uh, my favorite night, has got to be the night that uh, we talked about the Crusades. And you're probably familiar with uh, this period of Christian history, because Christians do the unthinkable. I mean, they raise an army in the name of Christ, and then they march on Jerusalem. I mean, it is unbelievable. They pillage and plunder. They, they kill people who are completely innocent. Yet the surprising thing about this event is that it actually started with the best of intentions. You see, for years, uh, Christians in Europe had been making this journey, this pilgrimage from Europe to the Holy Land. And along the way, uh, Christians were being mistreated. Some were attacked, many were taxed, and this gets the people back home thinking, you know, we've got to do something about this problem. We've got to make sure these people have safe passage. I mean, it starts with the best of intentions. Of course, what do the people do? They, they raise an army, and they make their march, and it becomes one of the lowest points in Christian history. And I'll never forget the end of the first night. Uh, a guy in my class asked, he says, you know, how could Christians do this? How could people who, who know the love of Jesus Christ kill one another? And, you know, there are all sorts of answers to that question, but, but I think the simplest answer is this. When there are two different parades, it's so easy to show up at the wrong location. You know, it shocks me just how often this actually happens in my own life. You know, I'll be, I'll be driving on the beltway, right? Somebody cuts me off. And then, you know, you hear my response and, and you realize that I've forgotten that we are supposed to love one another. Or, or, you know, like, I get home after a long day at work, right? My neighbor really wants to have this conversation. She wants to tell me something, but, you know, I just don't want to bear her burdens. Or, or I'm in an argument with somebody I care about deeply, and, and somehow I manage to forget. It's not about being right. It's about our relationship. And, you know, it's not even the stuff that I do. It's not even the stuff we do. It's, it's that it's so tempting to believe that Jesus doesn't really rule and reign over, over everything that there is. You know, that's how uh, many people told me they were feeling after last week's election. And after, after a long campaign season and everything we saw, I can certainly understand why people would feel that way. But, you know, if, if Jesus had run for office... I don't even think we could have elected him because he just doesn't seem strong enough. And that's why I need this reminder. That's why we need this reminder because the power and presence of Jesus isn't seen in his strength. It's seen in his weakness. I mean, they nail him to a cross and he looks at the people who placed them there and he forgives all of them. And then at what's got to be one of our lowest moments, we put him to death. But he doesn't stay dead. I mean, now he is risen and ascended. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And now Jesus invites us each and every day 
to march with him. A little over a year ago, uh, three men armed with rifles and explosives attacked the Bataclan Theater in the heart of Paris. And as some of you may remember, uh, this was part of a larger terrorist attack on the city of Paris in which some 89 people died that night in, in just under three hours. And among the casualties was a woman named Helene Moyalaris, the wife of Antoine Laris, who stayed at home that night to watch their 17-month-old son. And, you know, in the, in the days following that event, I can only imagine the kind of grief that he experienced, which is what makes what happens next so surprising. See, two days after his wife's death, he, he went on social media and he posted an open letter to his wife's killers. And he said this, Friday night, you took the life of an exceptional being, the love of my life, the mother of my children. But then he says, you will not have my hate. And you know, I can think of no better picture of what it looks like to show up at Jesus' parade, to show strength through weakness. Because Jesus' rule and reign isn't seen in power. It's seen in weakness. And every time we we don't make it about ourselves, every time we put others first, we show the whole world that Jesus and no one else rules and reigns over all there is. And so that's why it's my hope and prayer that God would grant you his grace as you face all your todays and tomorrows in a world like ours that he would strengthen you through the one who is made strong in weakness, that as we are made strong together, we might show the whole world who our king really is and give to everyone a bold witness. Amen. Now may the peace of God which supports all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.